All right, please give your attention as God's word is read. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have zeal. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So last week, uh, we finished really, I guess, the bulk of Romans chapter 9 by going through verse 29, which looked at a very challenging doctrine, at the very challenging doctrine of God's sovereign choice and election. And it's always very challenging to go through that because, as we said before, it kind of goes against our lived experiences, the idea of God choosing when we feel like, you know, we're responding in faith. Uh, And it's tough also for a number of reasons because... As we saw earlier in Romans chapter 9, Israel had been the recipient of many of God's blessings, very numerous blessings from God's gracious hands, which Paul himself outlines in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9. Yet despite all of these blessings, many Jews rejected their king, many Jews rejected their Messiah. And despite the gospel of the kingdom going forth into all nations, The Jews have rejected that message of hope and salvation. And of course, this fact led to Paul expressing a deep sorrow and a great lamentation for his people, for Israel, because of their rejection. In fact, in that section, Paul himself says, I wish that I were cursed. I wish that I could take the curse of God upon myself if it would mean the salvation of my people, my brethren, according to the flesh, my fellow kinsmen, my countrymen. But then Paul spends the rest of chapter 9 showing how Israel's failure to receive the gospel is not a failure of the word of God. God's word has not failed, even though Israel, his chosen people, have not believed for the most part. In fact, it has always been taught that not all Israel are Israel. That's what God's word has always taught. This was true in the lives of the patriarchs. Not everyone who was descended from Abraham became a part of the covenant people of God. We looked at that through Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. Ishmael was not chosen. Esau was not chosen. It was the line went from Abraham to Isaac to, to Jacob. So God is absolutely sovereign, free to show mercy on some and to pass over others in judgment. And then the balance of the chapter goes into detail of that principle in verse 18 of chapter 9, that God is free to show mercy. He shows mercy on whomever he shows mercy. He hardens whomever he hardens. And it goes on to show that God is not unjust for doing so. God is not to blame for Israel's unbelief. He goes on to show the illustration taken from uh, the prophet Jeremiah that God is the potter and that we are all the clay and 
The potter has absolute freedom, absolute sovereignty over the clay to do whatever he wants. He can make vessels for good use, vessels for dishonorable use. And the bottom line of that is that God is God and we are not. Right? God is the creator. We are the creature. We do not have a right to talk back to God. And after a while, just as we said last week, you know, when you're arguing with your children and you get to the point where you just cease all discussion and you just say, because I said so, stop, you know, and because all of this arguing about, well, you know, why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God do that? It's just showing man's own arrogance, man's own uh, sort of trying to exercise his own autonomy against God for his choices. But the potter has absolute freedom over the clay. But despite the fact that many Jews have rejected their Messiah, God has always uh, sort of maintained and, and, and defended and preserved a faithful remnant. There has always been a faithful remnant at any point in Israel's history, even in their deepest, darkest days of idolatry and apostasy. There has always been a faithful remnant of Jews who have believed and have stayed faithful to uh, the truth as it has been revealed to them. And that's, why, that's where we are as we come now to Romans chapter 10, or the end of 9 into the beginning of 10. So Romans 9, as we said a couple weeks back, answers the question of Israel's unbelief from the perspective of God's divine sovereignty, from God's perspective. So those who believe and those who do not believe are are so because God elects some to salvation and passes over others for judgment. He has mercy on whomever he will have mercy. He hardens whomever he will harden. But now as we start looking at Romans 10, we're going to see the same question now of Israel's unbelief answered from the perspective of Israel's responsibility to believe or man's responsibility to believe. Now, again, coming out of Romans 9, it would be understandable if one still felt as if God makes his sovereign choices and we're sort of stuck with that choice. You know, as I, I kind of said, you know, it's like last week, you know, it felt something, you know, sometimes you can almost feel like we're in a play and we're assigned a role and you're like, well, I don't want to be the role of the bad guy. Can I be, can I, can I read for the role of the good guy? Why do I have to be the role? Why do I have to play Pharaoh? I want to be Moses. It's like, no, you're going to be Pharaoh. You know, it's like that sometimes you can feel like that when you, when all you talk about is God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. In other words, you can almost suppose that maybe many in Israel were desperately wanted to believe. I wanted to believe you, God, but you sovereignly chose that I would not believe in you. Well, that's not what we're going to see here. As we look in Romans 10 over the next two weeks, Lord willing, uh, Israel, for the most part, when I say the most part, I mean the the. the the Jews who rejected Christ. So when I, I'm going to be using the, the term the Jews or Israel as I go through this. It's really to describe those who disbelieve, not all Jews, because we know not all Jews have disbelieved because Paul himself is a believing Jew. But for the most part, the Jews who rejected their Messiah freely chose to do so. That's what we're going to see as we look at Romans 10. It is there. They failed in their responsibility They failed in their responsibility. And that's the point. God's eternal decree works itself out in such a way that human beings are responsible for the choices they make. 
This is a teaching generally goes by the name of concurrence. So you've got like two paths that follow the same trajectory. They go the same route. One is God's sovereign choice. The other one is man's uh, responsibility, man's free choices. Now, men, yesterday, we were looking at the book of Acts and we referenced another verse. What is a verse that comes to mind that talks about this doctrine of concurrence where God wills something and man also wills something and it, it goes together even though what man wills is different than what God wills? Right, exactly. <laughs> right, Genesis 50, verse 20. At the end of Joseph's life, well, not Joseph, at the end of Genesis, I should say. At the end of Genesis, when Joseph confronts his brothers and he, you know, they're there, they think, they're thinking, oh, good Lord, our dad is dead and now Joseph is going to enact his revenge on us. And he says to his brothers, fear not, we're in a good place now. And the reason we're in a good place is because God overrode your evil desires to bring me to the point where I can save my family and eventually save the Jewish people and prepare the way for Moses and the covenant and everything else in God's redemptive plan. So as for you, brothers, you meant harm and evil to me, but God meant it for good. God worked that into his plan for good. So God's will for good and the brothers' will for evil concurred or flowed together so that God's will was accomplished, yet Joseph's brothers are still responsible for the evil they did. It doesn't absolve them from evil. So they're still responsible for their sin. And we're going to look at this more closely as we get deeper in Romans 10. Another example of concurrence directly from the book of Acts, which we looked at yesterday in Acts 2.23, if I remember the verse correctly, is where Peter's in a sermon and he's preaching to the gathered Jews who are there on Pentecost Sunday from all over the, the region. And he says, you crucified the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it was according to God's predetermined and predestined plan that he would die at your hands. Again, God meant it for good. Man meant it for evil. Yet God wins <laughs> because God, you know, his will overrides our evil choices. So now as we begin looking at Romans 10, well, really, again, the end of chapter 9, we're going to look at in three basic sections. The first one here uh, is the main question. How has Israel failed? And we're going to see that in verses 30 and 31. So the question Paul asked, which is similar to questions he's asked earlier in the chapter, verse 6, verse 14, verse 19, where he says, what shall we say then? It seeks to move the conversation along now to the next point. So he's just talked about, for 29 verses, um, talking about God's sovereign choice and election, talking about how God hardens whom he wills, has mercy on, he, on whomever he wills. And here then in verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, but the righteousness that is by faith However, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. So the point, what he's trying to set up here is you have Jews who have been forever sort of pursuing righteousness. Gentiles who have not been pursuing righteousness are sort of kind of fall, you know, they kind of, they kind of sort of, you know, luck into it because it's a righteousness that is by faith. And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, you know, in other words, it's sort of like they don't have all of that background of all the Jewish 
you know, legal system in their heads to sort of put a veil over their eyes to see the truth here. So you've got people who are not pursuing something, they get it, and then people who have pursued it their entire lives do not attain it. That's what the question here is. So what shall we say? Is that what's happening here? Paul's imaginary opponent seems to be at a loss. The, God, the Jews, God's chosen people and recipients of the many manifold blessings and privileges from God have failed to arrive at that law of righteousness. Or as other translations would say, uh, have not achieved the righteousness of the law or have not attained their goal. But Gentiles were not seeking righteousness. They did not have the law. They did not have the prophets. They did not have the covenants, the patriarchs, etc. They attained it. They attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith in Christ. This would be sort of like a Jewish bizarro world. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what's happening here? It's like, we've been pursuing this goal all our lives, and you're telling us, Paul, that we don't have it? Yet people who are, you know, uncouth barbarians, uncircumcised barbarians, they're, they're getting the, sal- the, the promises that we were promised? For centuries, God has been leading, guiding, shepherding, protecting, defending the Jewish people. He's lavished blessing upon blessings on them. He has given them his very law, written as it were by his own finger. The law which expresses his holy and moral character. And then all of a sudden, this Jewish rabbi comes along, who many believe to be the Messiah. And he says that the kingdom is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. What's up with this? This is not what we were taught. Then to top it off, Gentiles uh, are flocking to the disciples of this would-be Messiah, and they're said to be the recipients of the very blessings that God is supposed to be giving to us. I think if I were Jewish, and if I were Paul's opponent, this would rankle my fur a little bit. (laughs) This would upset me. Working so hard for something to not get it, and then people like these Johnny-come-latelys, and they get it. Turn in your Bibles to keep your finger in Romans 9 and 10 and turn to Matthew 20. Because it's kind of reminiscent of a parable Jesus tells when he was teaching people about the nature of the kingdom of God. Or in Matthew's case, the kingdom of heaven. It's the, the parable of the labors in the vineyard. It's a, it's a popular parable. Most you, know, you should all know this one. But in Matthew 20, verse 1, Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired at about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us and have who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day? But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. 
Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Go back to Romans 9 and 10. Now, it's not an exact parallel, but the idea here is, you know, the Jews who are complaining in Romans 9 here would be similar to those who were hired first. They've been laboring in the field all day, all day, and then the Gentiles would be like those at the 11th hour who come at the last minute, and they're getting the same blessings, the same promises that the Jews have been working all their life long for. Now, the point Paul wants to make to his imaginary opponent and to us as well is this. All the privilege in the world doesn't matter if you pursue righteousness in the wrong way. That's the point Paul is going to make here. All the privilege in the world doesn't matter if you pursue righteousness in the wrong way. So Paul answers his interlocutor's question, what shall we say then, by showing then two people, two approaches, and two results. Now the two people are obvious. It's Jews and Gentiles, right? Those are the two different groups of people. Now, the two approaches are really two ways or two means of attaining the righteousness of God. And you've got the righteousness, which is by faith, which is what Paul has been arguing all throughout Romans. And you've got the righteousness or a law of righteousness. So works righteousness, doing works of the law. And then you've got your two results. Again, are obvious. You have success and failure, respectively. Now, the whole thrust of Romans goes back to our theme verse, if you remember from all the way back in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, right? It's not not for Gentiles, it's it's to the Jew first, because, again, the, the law, the prophets, the covenants, the Messiah come out of the Jewish line. So, It goes to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous one will live by faith. The righteousness of God that they were pursuing is one that is granted graciously by God to those who have faith. Because that's what we see later on in Romans. Romans 3, verses 21 and 22. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe. So though Israel's failure was sovereignly decreed by God, Romans 9, it manifests itself in Israel's willful ignorance of one simple fact. The righteous man shall live by faith. So Israel, having pursued the law as a way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Verse 31, and that's in the NIV. Having pursued the law as a way of righteousness, they have not attained their goal. So they thought the road to righteousness led through works of the law. And then they realized that it was a dead end that didn't go anywhere. In fact, it went off a cliff <laughs> in, that, in that sense. In fact, they failed to heed the lesson of their father, Abraham, who was the father of the faithful. Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, the prophet says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, 
and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain when he was the only one. Uh, when he was the only one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. The prophet saying to the Jewish people, look to Abraham. And what did Abraham do? Remember Genesis 15, 6. He believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You cannot find righteousness by pursuing works of the law. So that's the question. What's the answer? Well, the answer of Israel's unbelief is because they did not pursue it by faith. Verses 32 and 33. So the next question that provokes the answer to Israel's problem in verse 32. So why did did they not attain their goal? Why did they fail to attain righteousness? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though they could by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, we've already looked at this before, but Paul wants to drive the point home. Israel did not pursue it, that is righteousness, by faith. Now, note, it wasn't Israel's pursuit that was wrong. The pursuit of righteousness is a good thing, right? The pursuit of righteousness is a good thing. It is the chief pursuit of man because it is the one thing We lack due to the fall. We were created by God, holy, righteous, and and good. But then we fell. We lost that righteousness. So ever since the fall, when mankind lost his perfect communion with God, he has been on a quest then to ascend into heaven. We lack righteousness. We need to feel like now we need to work our way. We need to earn our way. We looked at this yesterday too with the men. What is the Tower of Babel but man's attempt to sort of Build a stairway to heaven. Not to steal the Led Zeppelin song, but they were attempting to, I mean, it was kind of like a ziggurat, so kind of like a stairway up to to heaven. Every single man-made religion, despite their differences, has this one thing in common. They're all attempts to ascend to heaven. They're all attempts to earn, merit, whatever kind of righteous or good behavior before God. We are works-oriented creatures, so we attempt to earn favor with God. I think if you just ask any random person on the street, particularly one who believes in God in heaven, how do you get into heaven? What do you think their answer will be? Yeah, be good, right? Be a good person. Do more good than bad. Perform some form of religious ritual, whatever. So it wasn't Israel's pursuit that was wrong. We all want to appear before the judgment seat of God and hear him say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant, right? We all want God's fatherly approval. And we think somehow that we can earn that by being good people. That's a trap even Christians can fall into, thinking that the way to earn his approval is to do more and to try harder. That is to do it by works. The Jews did not attain the goal of righteousness because they pursued it by the wrong means. Okay, so I'm going to pick on the men here again. Men, have you ever been driving with your wife and you appear to be lost? I'm going to put appear in quotes because men are never lost, right? We know exactly where we're going. We're taking the scenic route. But you appear to be lost. And your wife says to you, 
Why don't you stop and ask for directions? Now, of course, being men, we never ask for directions, right? We don't use the instruction booklet whenever we put something together, which is why sometimes drawers get made in desks upside down because you're not following the directions. But you don't look at the directions and you don't ask for directions when you're lost. We don't need anyone to tell us where we're going when we're driving. Well, Israel was on a trip to the land of righteousness and they took a wrong turn down Works Righteousness Street. And it was leading them to the wrong place. In fact, God sent many prophets to them, telling them to stop and ask for directions. But they're like, no, I don't need to ask for directions. I know where I'm going. You can't tell me where to go. I'm sure this is the right way. Israel failed because they did not pursue it by faith. They neglected the lessons from Abraham They ignored the message of Habakkuk, and they failed to see that the sin within their own hearts made their attempts to pursue righteousness by works wrong. Then Paul says in verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Yeah, in Matthew 21, 42, uh, we're not going to turn there, but the Pharisees challenged the authority of Jesus, and he tells the parable of the landowner. That's the one where he lotted out a parcel of land to uh, some vine, uh, vineyard workers, and they refuse to give him the the fruits of the land. So God sends messengers, and they you know they they beat one messenger, they bloody another one, they kill the third, and then he says, "I'll send my son." Surely they're not going to abuse my son and say, "Hey, it's the son. Let's kill him, and then the vineyard will be ours." And then he you know he tells the Jews, "It's like, well, what's what's the master going to do to those worthless workers?" And the Jews are like, "Well, you know, he's going to come in there and kill them." It's like. You know, sort of like what you know, Nathan said to David. It's like, well, you're the man, right? <laughs> you're the vineyard workers that are not giving God the fruit that is deserved. But at the end of that parable, in Matthew 21, verses 42 and 44, Jesus says to them, Did you never read in the scriptures a stone which the builders rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. The came, uh, this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces and on whomever it falls, it will crush him. That's Jesus quoting from Psalm 118.22. So he's telling the Jews, you stumbled, you fell, and now the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to a people who do not know, you know anything, the, the Gentiles basically. Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected. And here in verse 33, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 8, 14, when he says, just as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. So the Jews stumbled over Jesus. Now, how did they stumble over Jesus? Well, they stumbled over him by rejecting his explanation of the law. Again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in that sermon gives a master's class on the law in chapter 5. He first tells them that he came to fulfill the law in Matthew 5.17. I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He then tells his disciples that they need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees in verse 20. Now, the Pharisees, what kind of righteousness did they pursue? 
works righteousness, right? So you need to have a righteousness that's better than that. You need to have one that exceeds the Pharisees. And then he goes on in verses 21 through 47 of Matthew 5 to completely dismantle the Pharisaical understanding of the law. Six times in that section, Paul or Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. So you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you, you shall not even look at a woman with lustful intent because then you've committed adultery in your heart. He gives them a deeper, more deeper understanding of the law than they, than their superficial understanding allowed of them. And then he closes that section on the law with a seemingly impossible statement where he says, therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Other places in the Bible talk about if you want to live by the law, you have to live by all the law. Right. James says, if you break the law in one point, you've essentially broke it all. Doesn't do any good to go before the judge if you're being convicted for murder and say, well, I've never stolen I've, I've honored my father and my mother. I've never you know, committed false witness. I haven't coveted anything. Yeah, but you, you murdered. <laughs> you broke the law. You know, it, it doesn't matter to say that you haven't broken all these other laws. You broke this law. You've broken all of it. Now, that's quite a stumbling block. In fact, this would be what some may call a paradigm shift. It just completely changes their way of thinking about the law. Jesus' teaching was so radical, quote-unquote, that it provoked harsh responses from the Jewish leaders. Now, to go back to my driving illustration, no one likes to be told that they're going the wrong way, right? Particularly if you're a man. It's like, no, I'm not going the wrong way. I know where I'm going. I know this is supposed to be the street. We're supposed to make a right turn here, and so on and so forth. The Jews did not attain righteousness through the law. They stumbled over Jesus. And no one likes to be told that their life pursuit is leading them to hell. Because that's the road they were on. The, the road of you know, going down works righteousness street is going to lead you to hell. Well, now we look, finally now we're getting into Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. The reason why they did not fail, or the, the reason why they failed to, to not attain the righteousness of the law is because Christ is the end of the law. That's what we see in verses 1 through 4. For, now, in first, verses 1 and 2, after laying out this case that the Jews failed because they did not pursue righteousness by faith, Paul, again, is kind of laying out his heart here in verses 1 and 2, where he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. It's kind of reminiscent of how he began chapter 9, where he laments with deep sorrow the, 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 the failure of Jews to believe the gospel. Now, this is not just some regret or disappointment that an evangelist has because somebody did not believe his message. This is a desperate desire in Paul's heart for the salvation of his own people. In fact, note his earnest prayer for their salvation. He prays, it is my earnest prayer that they come to faith in Christ, which is odd considering in Romans chapter 9, he just told us God's sovereign choice that they didn't believe. So why is he praying to God when it's God's sovereign choice that they did not believe? Anybody have an answer to that one? 
Well, it's God's will that they pray, right? <laughs> I mean, God, God chooses the ends as well as the means, okay? Now, the end, of course, is salvation. The means, sharing the gospel, being a good neighbor, loving your neighbor, uh, praying for them. <laughs> you know, God says pray for them. Prayer is a God-ordained means of achieving his will. So, you know, the, just a mini lesson here. Don't ever stop praying for your lost uh, family members or loved ones. Do not ever stop praying for them. God will work his will through prayer. But then Paul testifies that before God, the Jews have a zeal. They had a zeal for God. As we saw earlier, the Jews' pursuit of righteousness was not the problem. It was the path they chose. And they had a great zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, who better would know about zeal without knowledge than Paul himself, right? (laughs) Paul was, he's part of like the, you know, if you looked in the dictionary definition of zeal without knowledge, you'd probably see Paul's picture there. He is the poster child for zeal without knowledge. So again, keep your finger in Romans here and let's turn to Philippians 3. I've referenced this before and it's also a very well-known passage. So here, Paul, in this section, is giving, he's warning the Philippians about the, the Judaizers. So people that would try to say, in order to be a Christian, you have to first be a Jew and you have to observe the law. You have to be circumcised if you're a man. You have to be, you know, you have to observe the dietary restrictions and all that stuff. So he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for those who wish to rob you of your joy. Uh, beware of these people who are the circumcision. And then he goes on and, and then he gets into a little sort of like what I like to call like a, a, a resume comparison. He's like, these Judaizers, they think they're so good. Well, let's, let's compare some resumes here. Let me show you my resume. So Paul's resume starts in verse 4 of chapter 3. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, he's saying, Look, if you want to talk about works of the law, I've, I've got everyone beat. No one has more confidence, or no one had more confidence in his flesh boasting than Paul. He goes on, verse 5 circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he, he shows his pedigree. Look, I was born in the right family, I was born in the right tribe. I was, I, you know, I'm the, the tribe of tribes. I'm, I'm, I'm super Jew. <laughs> I would be Captain Israel if I were a superhero. I'd have a Star of David on my chest and a big flowing cape behind me. And I would stand there, you know, for truth, justice, and the Jewish way. That would be Paul. That's his pedigree. How about his performance? As to the law, a Pharisee. So I joined, I didn't just go to any old sect of Judaism. I went to the strictest sect of Judaism. As to zeal, here we go, his zealousness, a persecutor of the church. His zeal for God was so strong that he persecuted anything and everything that went against his way of thinking. As to zeal according to the law, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So there's his resume. It's like, look, I had a zeal for God. 
but without knowledge. Because then he goes and says, now I, 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 I had an up-close and personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I found out that everything I put my trust in was garbage, was worthless, was dung. Toss it out. You can go back to Romans now. Paul was so zealous for God that he was a persecutor of the church. But all the zeal in the world is useless unless that zeal is directed by true knowledge. There are many zealous people out in the world, right? Many zealous people in other faiths with other ideologies that are guided by their zeal, in their zeal, by lies and falsehoods. The problem is not the zeal. The problem is in the fact that it's misdirected zeal. So verse 3, Paul says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They did not know about the true gospel, the revelation of the righteousness of God to those who believe. The Jews sought to establish their own righteousness. And I've said this before. You don't want to go before God with your resume in your hand. Okay? You don't want to go to God and say, here's my resume. Let me into heaven. You know, I'm sure you're going to read this. You're going to feel like this is great and you're going to just let me in. That's a bad plan. Because the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. We come before God with our righteousness. We, we come before God as dirty, filthy, and gross. That's what God sees our righteousness as. It's like, what are you bringing to me? What are you bringing to me? This is worthless. I don't want this. So instead of subjecting themselves to the righteousness of God, they thought it better to go before God with their own righteousness. But again, the righteousness of God is that which is freely granted to us by grace through faith in Christ. It cannot be earned. And the reason the righteousness cannot be earned through law, uh, keeping of the law is because Christ is the end of the law. So we see in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that word end, telos, okay, it can mean both a goal and a termination. And Paul probably intends both meanings when he talks about Christ being the end of the law. Again, we looked at Matthew 5.17, how Christ came to fulfill the law. So Christ is seen as the goal of the law. The Old Testament law points to and finds its purpose in Christ. But also the perfect righteousness that Christ earns himself and should uh, that, that righteousness that he earns should end any and all attempts on our part to try to earn righteousness through the law. So he is the end of trying to earn a righteousness through the law because he himself has done it and he himself then freely gives that to us by grace through faith. And again, you can look back at what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus fully explains that superficial obedience does not meet the demands of the law. God requires perfect holiness according to the law, and our works do not match. So Jesus Christ is the end of all of our futile attempts to earn righteousness uh, in the present and our righteousness before God. This is why Paul can say then in Romans 6.14, we're no longer under the law. 
We're no longer under the the burden of the law. We're no longer under its judgment. We're no longer under its requirements, at least as an attempt to earn righteousness. We still have to obey, but but obedience becomes a gratitude, an offering of thankfulness to God for everything he's done for us, not as a way to earn righteousness. So in Romans 6, 14, he says, we're no longer under the law. In Romans 7, 4, he can say, we're dead to the law. We're no longer under the law and we're dead to the law. The the law is no longer our tutor. Paul says in Galatians, the law was a tutor, a schoolmaster to instruct us until Christ comes. Now Christ is here. You no longer need the tutor, right? If you can ride a bicycle, you don't need training wheels anymore. (laughs) The law was the training wheels. But if you can ride the bicycle, do away with the training wheels, The righteousness we need before God is one that he graciously gives to everyone who believes, as he ends there in verse 4. Well, that's it for this morning. Next time, next week, the 21st, we're going to continue this look at Israel's unbelief from the vantage point of human responsibility as we're going to consider uh, basically the rest of chapter 10. So verses 5 through 21.